we see more and more merchant asset owners really finding a better balance in where they spend their money, understanding that monitoring and management is as important as building up high walls. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Industrial Security Podcast. I'm Nate Nelson, here with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He is going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how's it going? I'm very well. Thank you, Nate. We have two guests today. Dr. Falk Lindner is the lead architect for industrial cybersecurity at Airbus Manufacturing. And Marcus Brandl is the head of the Airbus cybersecurity business. Now, this is a separate business. It's owned by Airbus. But Airbus cybersecurity does conventional and industrial cybersecurity. They do it for Airbus, and they do it for many other customers around the world. And our topic today is security, monitoring, and management. Let's get into it. Hello, Marcus. Hello, Falk. Thank you for joining us. Um, before we start, let me, uh, you know, I, I wanted to, Mark, Marcus, you knew Walt Sikora. Um, I knew him yes. well as well. Uh, you know, Walt passed away recently. And, you know, I wanted to just say a few words, um, you know, uh, about Walter in, in, in memory of him. Um, you know, I, I worked with Walter at Industrial Defender. Um, I remember that he started with the business in, I don't know, 2003, 2004, something like that. Uh, so he was a pioneer of industrial cybersecurity is, is what I remember. Uh, you know, he went from Industrial Defender. Uh, the Industrial Defender was acquired by Lockheed Martin. And I think later on, he moved to be a, a manager of cybersecurity services for industrial security at ABB. So he was involved yeah you know, heavily in the, the industrial security space. He was very active in the space. I would see him at, at conferences. I would see him on webinars. Um, you know, I remember him at Industrial Offender. I remember him as being, you know, I'll call it a character. Walter had an opinion on everything, and he was not afraid to tell you what his opinion was. Um, but I also remember him as being completely committed to the business. You know, he did what was right for the business no matter what. Um, and he was committed to industrial cybersecurity. This is what he devoted the the last twenty years of his career to. So, I just wanted to, you know, say, you know, it's it's uh, it's sad that that he's passed. Uh, you know, the, we're 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 going to miss him. He he made an impact on the industry. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I appreciate you saying that, Andrew. I mean, we definitely lost one of the best ones with Walt. He was, uh, you know, I had the fortune to, you know, work closely with him on, on different things. Uh, over the years and, and learned a lot from him. You know, I think, uh, you know, I probably learned more from him than, than many others. And, and a lot of us in this industry, whether knowingly or not, you know, benefited from, from, from Walt and what he did. Because, uh, you know, one of the things that I always appreciated about him, you know, as he said, he was very opinionated, but he was also really uh, keen on driving this industry forward, no matter, you know, working with whom, right? He was really interested in working across the board, whether it was between different uh, solution providers, asset owners, vendors across uh, countries. Um, you know, so I think he will be missed greatly because again, he, he it was just one of, of the best in our industry. Indeed, we will miss him. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna talk about security monitoring and management in a moment. 
But, uh, you know, before we start, Falk and Marcus, um, can you start by telling us a bit about yourselves and a bit about Airbus cybersecurity and, and uh, you know, what you're, what you're doing there? Maybe a little bit about myself. So my name is Marcus Brandler. I've been uh, doing uh, or been involved in industrial cybersecurity now also well over a decade. Uh, you know, I spent uh, pretty much a decade with ABB, uh, one of the global vendors. Uh, you know, started out in corporate research, doing penetration tests and security assessments on embedded devices. Uh, and then, you know, I ended up building the entire cybersecurity uh, program uh, within ABB that focused on, you know, the, the, the products and, and the customer side. And, you know, those were 10 very interesting years to see how this space has, has really developed. Uh, three and a half years ago, roughly, I then uh, uh, was looking for a, a new challenge uh, and had the great opportunity to join Airbus Cybersecurity. Um, Airbus Cybersecurity, you know, is, 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 a, is a business within the big Airbus group. Airbus, of course, I think mainly know uh, for, for its, its, its aircrafts. Um, such as the A380, I think that's really the flagship. Uh, but Airbus is a lot more than, than aircraft. We also, you know, helicopters, satellites, uh, military aviation, uh, but also more and more digital offerings, secure communications. And then also uh, we have a cybersecurity business, um, you know, that's uh, quite successful mainly in Europe. And again, since about three and a half years, I, I'm heading this business um, and it's been a lot of fun, you know, also, uh, Andrew, uh, I'm sure you can appreciate that. It's been, it's been a lot of fun, you know, changing sides a little, going from an uh, industrial uh, vendor uh, to someone that's uh, developing and delivering security solutions. All right. Um, yes, so my name is Falk Lindner. I work for Airbus Commercial Aircraft um, in the department of IM Industrial Cybersecurity. Um, that means my employee is um, my employer is the business that uh, produces, delivers, and maintains aircraft, commercial aircraft, um, with uh, well a European network of plants and a global network of uh, final assembly lines, uh, delivering. Uh, I think it was 800 aircraft, civil aircraft, last year. And my current role as a lead architect and a product owner of industrial cybersecurity solutions is to make sure that our industrial production and our assembly is protected from any kind of cyber threat. And uh, in this role, I am working together with Marcus and his team to really um, emphasize and 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 uplift the cybersecurity posture that we are having. Um, my background was uh, in, in various uh, industries. I started as an expert in um, nuclear power plants, uh, working with the first steps of industrial cybersecurity in those areas, and switched over to engineering uh, and build up a team of uh, cybersecurity analysts and experts that consulted um, many businesses and, and ultimately uh, joined Airbus uh, three years ago to 
um, yeah, to to contribute in the Department of Industrial Cybersecurity. I'm fascinated by all aspects of of you know the industrial process, not just industrial security. I've never you know Falk, I've never had the opportunity to visit anything to do with uh, you know aircraft or aerospace manufacturing, and you know much less the, the the final assembly plants that I'm told are massive. Can you talk about the manufacturing process? What does it take to manufacture an air, an airplane or a helicopter? Was it what's it you know? What does that look like? Is it one big factory where everything happens? Is it hundreds of smaller sites? And can you just talk about the the, the physics of this? What you know? What does manufacturing an aircraft entail? And and how many pieces are there? Well, there are a lot of pieces. Um, I think the way that Airbus uh, produces aircraft is uh, it's uh, largely also contributed by the history of the company, uh, being um, being it for distinct aircraft manufacturers from from the four um, founding countries uh, Britain uh, so the UK uh, Germany France and Spain then they all merged together under the brand of Airbus um, uh, to join forces basically and to produce aircraft and that means that we have manufacturing sites all over those four countries we have actually 11 plants in Europe that produce parts um, for the aircraft. Um, and as you can imagine, those four countries are not like next to each other. There's a heavy logistics involved into assembling those pieces together to an aircraft. Um, so in addition to those 11 plants, we have uh, four final assembly lines, into, one in Toulouse, one in Hamburg, one in um, Mobile, Alabama, and one in Tianjin in China. and the parts that we assemble uh, or that that we produce in, in the 11 plants in Europe then gets distributed and they get distributed by our um, logistics aircraft, uh, the Beluga, which is an impressive sight to see to if they land and then start um, via ship and of course via, um, via cargo transport overland. Um, so that's and then then and those uh, plants they not they do not all assemble uh, manufacture the same parts they have they are quite specialized so a lot of the wing production is is uh, located in the UK the horizontal um, stabilizers and HTP VTPs are produced in Spain ma mainly um, a lot of the the cockpit and and electronics is uh, is manufactured in in France and Hamburg is a is a, has a strong dedication to the cabin so they are they have all their specialties and then their their logistics uh, in the process are interweaved quite heavily so yeah that's so it takes a lot cool. Andrew if you know for me this was all new as well right I came more from oil and gas and uh, you know, uh, energy and these kind of things. I mean, this is a, a different animal, if I'm honest, you know, just to think about the fact that Airbus, you know, built an aircraft with the Beluga to help manufacture aircrafts, just shows you the sort of uh, engineering ingenuity that goes goes into this. Um, and, you know, I think Falk, you know, said before that uh, we delivered 800 aircrafts last year so again to put that into perspective that means delivery of an air two to three deliveries every single day right on average so you know this also in terms of you know 
you know, uh, reliability you can imagine. You know, there, there is no room for for error. And uh, I can't remember how many thousands of parts go into an aircraft. I mean, this is it is really fascinating. You know, it's a, it's a completely new world. Jumping in briefly here, Nate, what uh, what I took away there is, you know, they're producing two to three aircraft a day. Um, you know, in the cybersecurity space, if you hack the production process somewhere in a way that impairs, you know, production for, let's say, two or three days, that's 10 aircraft you didn't produce. That, that's huge. True. Um, I would say that, if anything, what stood out to me, um, at least from a security perspective, I know we're getting into security a bit later, is uh, how how we mentioned that they get they manufacture parts rather from lots of different locations in the world. Um, immediately, what comes to mind when uh, someone says something like that is supply chain risk. Andrew, what do you think about that? Is there any risk that when parts are being created in all different types of locations that somehow in the process of transfer um, to their main hub, something could, you know, be intercepted? I think the short answer is yes, that's a problem. And, you know, from what I recall of the interview here, um, these folks are are very thorough. They cover, uh, you know, the entire space. I don't recall if we talked about supply chain risks specifically, but you know what I what I will suggest is that, um, in my understanding, Airbus is maybe a little bit unusual. Um, they produce a lot of their stuff themselves. You know, yes, they must buy stuff from somebody, but they do a lot of their own production. And so, if you control the production process from start to end uh, and you're buying only sort of the uh, the smallest inputs at the at the beginning process that's a that's a smaller supply chain problem than you know imagine an, an imaginary uh, company manufacturing aircraft that buys all of the components from somebody else and all they do is final assembly and test that would be a, a much bigger supply chain issue but to my knowledge that's not Airbus that that's fiction you know, Airbus does a lot of their own manufacturing. And so the, the problem may be smaller here than, than we imagine it is. But, but you know, that's guesswork. So that is, that is fascinating. It, you know, two to three aircraft a day. Um, can you talk about automation? Uh, you know, it, it, we're, we're, we're headed for industrial security. We're headed for security monitoring. But what is it we're monitoring? What you know, what kind of automation do we see? Is this all wireless? Is this all cloud-based? Is this all local? Is it robots? Is it PLCs? What What are we talking here? It would be great to have a single answer to that, but unfortunately for, for the security sake, we have a mixture of everything. So there is a strong push to automation and modern uh, capabilities in the manufacturing processes. So where you have car uh, carbon composite uh, parts, being assembled, being baked into in ovens and so on. So you have a huge automation for those processes. However, when you visit the final assembly line where all parts finally get assembled, you see you don't see that much of an automation. You see a lot of people working with tools to to drill and uh, to, to, to rivet stuff. So it's a mixture of everything which makes it also hard to protect. So you have you have very isolated uh, uh, machines that work for themselves, uh, doing 
their business and you have very high integrated machines that are remotely administrated that are that are monitored by manufacturing execution systems and so on so can we talk about cybersecurity you know and and uh, cybersecurity often has to do with connectivity um, you know all cyber attacks are information. Uh, if we understand how the information flows online and offline with, you know, people carrying laptops around and USBs around, um, what does, what's the security problem look like? For us, the biggest issue or the biggest um, um, opportunity that we have to master is uh, bridging the organizations. There are two very strong and very different organization that need to to collaborate much more together. And this is the OT and the IT organization. So we have a, we have basically solutions for all the IT threats available to the to our attackers. However, we need to make sure that when we want to integrate them into OT systems. Um, that the population that needs to work with those OT systems understand and are able to manage those solutions. And this needs a lot of work, it needs a lot of trust, and this comes with a lot of challenges um, in terms of ways of working, understanding, and collaboration. Yeah, fully agree. And I think on, on, on top of that, uh, you know, Airbus is also a, a leading defense player um, and, and because of that, we on, on top of you know those networks uh, have to maintain national networks that have very high security requirements, um, which makes the thing uh, e even more complex because then you're running, you know, your your international networks uh, on the IT side and the OT side, and you have you know national networks with very high security requirements, and managing all of this under one umbrella is is quite the challenge. And something that I picked up from, uh, you know, previous interviews on, on this podcast with uh, folks in discrete manufacturing, because, you know, I've done most of my work in the process world. One of the things I picked up was that uh, confidentiality is generally much more important in that world than it is in, in the process world. You know, in the process world, if you're producing power, you know, the, 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 the temperature set point on your steam boiler might be somewhat confidential, but, you know, everyone kind of boils steam. There's, there's not a lot of ways to do that. But when you're manufacturing an aircraft, there's a lot of uh, sort of proprietary know-how. Um, so can you talk about, um, you know, your, your, the discrete manufacturing problem, the Airbus problem? What, what do you folks do? How do you deal with, you know, not just keep, th keep, thing, you know, keep things safe, don't, don't kill the workers by having a robot go crazy, uh, you know, not just keep the production line going because you've got to produce two or three aircraft every day, but also, uh, you know, protecting the, the, the trade secrets so that, you know, uh, the, the competitors don't, don't, you know, steal the know-how from under you. How do you do all that? Where do you start with that? Actually, to be, to be quite honest, um, the, the, the third uh, of, the, of the fundamental security properties is, is the one that is really at our priority and that's integrity. And that's certainly a, a bit of a maybe a unique point to to um, aircraft, and um, since it's heavily regu uh, regulated, uh, we are under a strict process and need to have a very high quality that is auditable. 
That means ultimately that we need to make sure first and foremost that when we produce and use at the part, an aircraft part, that everything is up to the quality standards that we are certified against and that we promise our customers. And that's why for us as a first priority integrity of our OT systems is the, is the, is the priority. And we are we are uh, trying to establish that, or we, we are we are establishing that by closely monitoring the configurations and uh, and processes ar around um, our manufacturing systems. We have quality gates, of course, that uh, that that check for defects um, that are handled by both people and technology. Um, and we we really have a huge emphasis on change control. But yes, um, as a second part, confidentiality takes uh, takes also a large part and an e even greater importance in the defense and space business, uh, where we have uh, very high um, requirements regarding regarding these uh, these these information. Um, what we are doing as as the as our primary um, security um, border is really to to segregate to to try to segregate as much as possible um, systems from each other and control the information flow. That is really the foundation of how we protect information. And on top of that, we have of course. Um, systems in place that monitor and control how information gets exchanged by these systems. But like in all cases, the weakest link is always the human and that is um, in our business we are quite fortunate that um, due to our stake and our um, our well our reputation that we need to defend, the awareness within our um, employees is very high that um, Airbus information and and um, and its know-how needs to be very strictly protected. So Nate, the answer there, the beginning of of Fox's answer, actually surprised me. Um, you know, I'm. I'm more familiar with, you know, the, the process industries, with power plants, with refineries. At a refinery, the risk is that, you know, a, a catalytic cracker blows up and, and releases hot, flammable material into the atmosphere and, and injures people nearby. Or, you know, if there's a, a toxic release, uh, is a threat to, to nearby communities. Um, you know, I thought that in the in the discrete manufacturing world, imagine, I don't know, a, a washing machine manufacturing plant, there'd be robots, you know, you'd have concern about the safety of people working near the robots or repairing the robots. The robots had better be turned off when you're repairing them. Um, but the focus here seems quite different. The focus at Airbus is the safety of the public who fly in these aircrafts. And so, Every important piece of these aircrafts had better be built exactly to specification, had better be built right, so that public safety on the aircraft is not put at risk. So the, the quality 
of the production process. And, you know, he said a few words about tracking, auditable quality. You've got to track this stuff so that if there is an issue with an aircraft and people say, you know, maybe it was this component, um, how many other aircraft have this component in it that was manufactured in this way as opposed to in that way? These records all have to be there. You, In my understanding, you can't use a component unless you've got the records of its manufacture. If you lose the records, you may as well throw the component away. You're not allowed to use it. So the the uh, the quality uh, of of the output, you know, making sure it's safe is the, the priority here. And, and that was a, a great surprise to me. It's interesting. Um, not much in there struck me. Um, in fact, the only thing that did strike me about what these guys were saying is how sort of ordinary this sounds, how similar uh, cybersecurity in aviation uh, is to the ordinary industrial security we usually talk about on this show. Yes, in a sense. Um, what I got out of it really was sort of complexity and intensity. The, the pieces are very familiar. Anomaly detection, you know, endpoint, you know, anti-malware and other kinds of monitoring systems, pulling it all together. But, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, locations, a lot of... Uh, you know, a lot of technology that they're monitoring. And because of the, the quality imperative, because of the defense connection, the defense department connections, um, I have the sense that, you know, A, it's a very complicated environment, even if each of the pieces are reasonably familiar, and B, that it's a very intense environment. It's all, you know, reasonably familiar pieces, but but these people seem to care fairly intensely. Uh, the, the entire business seems to care fairly intensely about industrial cybersecurity. Yeah, I could imagine that um, as compared with like a, a manufacturer of some ordinary good, uh, there's less um, room for error in aviation. That's right. You know, uh, less room for error and... Uh, you know, both on the quality side and, you know, even just on the reliability side. Again, if you're down for three days, that's 10 aircraft you didn't produce. So it's, it's a very big deal. That frames the problem very nicely. You know, it, I take your point that, that uh, in this industry, um, yes, we worry about, you know, worker casualties and injuries because of, of, you know, things going wrong. But you're right. You're absolutely right. When I got a, on an aircraft, I want to know that every part of that aircraft was manufactured correctly. I don't want any, any so that, thank you for, for clarifying that. But when you talk about that, you know, that's a lot of priorities. Um, that's a lot of stuff to do. How do we, you know, and, and you know, our focus here is, is monitoring and management. How do we do that? What's the solution here look like? What, what solution do, you know, do you folks use for addressing these issues? If I look at Airbus, I mean, it's similar to, to other uh, customers and industries that we work with, of course. You know, the complexity keeps increasing, right? And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to go get into, uh, you know, get on my soapbox here, but, you know, while in the past uh, a lot of companies invested all of their security budget in building high walls, I think by now everyone realizes that's that's not feasible anymore because, you know, you have too many walls. You don't even know where you have walls. You don't know where there's, uh, you know, holes in these walls. So, you know, we find that more and more of our customers, and, and uh, you know, I would say the same is true uh, about Airbus, but I'll, I'll let uh, Falk comment on this, you know, are doing more and more to find a more balanced approach in spending their security budget. So, of course, you need to invest in protecting these systems and 
you know, the first step is always to understand your priorities. And I think Falk very well highlighted what that looks like for him and within Airbus. And then again, you need to find the right way between uh, investing in protection mechanisms, but then equally investing uh, in, in, in systems and, and processes uh, to, to monitor and to manage those systems and also to be able to react if something goes wrong. Um, and, you know, what we see more and more is, you know, while monitoring on the IT side uh, is common best practice, uh, not necessarily best practice in how people do it, but the fact that they are doing it, uh, we see that also more and more coming on the OT side. Um, and I think that's, that's really important. And it's also, you know, almost going a little bit back to what Falk just said about, you know, quality checks, right? Uh, monitoring is one way, is, is one quality check on the protection mechanisms that you've put in place. But right? if you invest money uh, in, 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 in firewalls, uh, unidirectional gateways, uh, you know, malware protection, all these kind of technologies, how do you know they work? How do you know that they cover everything, right? And monitoring is a way as a sort of, you can use that also as a, as a quality check to make sure that that investment you make uh, made really work. So we see more and more, uh, again, customers uh, and asset owners really finding a better balance in where they spend their money, understanding that, you know, monitoring and management is as important as building up high walls. Yes, I cannot agree more. Um, and if you do really the calculation uh, in terms of risk mitigation and you are in an environment that where all machines are different, all discrete manufacturing systems have their unique design and implementation, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a tough, it's a tough security challenge to protect them all from malware to protect them from malicious threats um, up to a acceptable level. But when you have a very hard time protecting everything from harm, it's you can you can utilize the way that in the end the way they behave is much 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 um, more homogeneous, right? They are doing processes and cycles, they are communicating um, rather standardized with each other and, and out uh, with, with other systems. And you can use that to really um, pay much more attention to monitoring and look for anomalies there than trying to protect every attack vector you find, which will basically be a huge expense with a more or less uh, mild effect on, on risk. Whereas when you have a proper monitoring and incident response, we, we must not forget incident response at this point because this is also a huge challenge to establish. But if you have this monitoring and incidents response at your disposal, you're much more effective in defeating cyber threats than you are with just focusing on protection itself. So this has been, uh, you know, fairly high level. Um, can I ask for a couple of examples? Um, you know, pick an example. I don't know, whatever, whatever you're most familiar with, you know, manufacturing seats in Germany for the, the passenger cabin or manufacturing, you know, the avionics instrumentation for the, for the, but, you know, can you give us an example 
and you know talk about what what kind of data are you looking at in the system what does what does monitoring one of these systems actually mean yeah i mean um we can we can use for as an example the um an autoclave, which is basically a, a very controlled oven to bake uh, composite parts, which is a system of, well, I don't know, 10 to 15 unique electronic items that communicate together to um, perfectly manufacture that part that's going to be baked. Um, these kind of systems are uh, protected in an industrial network, a segregated network. And what we do to collect data is, of course, to listen in on the communication that's going outside of the machine to the other systems in order to find anomalies in this kind of traffic. What we do in addition is we listen in into the into the security solutions that we deploy on certain IT systems inside of that machine. Of course, there are PCs and laptops deployed in there, and those systems we protect with uh, anti-malware solutions and so on. And we listen in, in and um, capturing a baseline and then finding anomalies in there as well. Uh, maybe the only thing I would have added here is, uh, I think when Falk says listening in, uh, I think one of the means of listening in is by using, you know, the well-known uh, OT sensors. Uh, you know, we have a partnership with Clarity. We work with Nozomi and others. But, you know, using these very specialized systems that were, you know, built to really understand the protocols that are being used in these manufacturing systems, right? Uh, this is one of the areas where, of course, you know, you have to find the right way of listening in and if you deploy you know, a classical IT pollution, you may not hear a lot because they don't understand the protocols that are being used. Okay. So, and once you gather, you know, this data, you've, you've, uh, you, you point out the, the manufacturing environments are stable. You can get baselines of what things are supposed to look like. Um, where do you send that data? Um, is it, you know, is it in the same plant? Is it on another continent? And, you know, if we're sending data over a long distance, um, you know, that's introducing connectivity. Is that itself not an issue? How do you, where do you send the data and, and how do you deal with those issues? I think that, you know, that's a fantastic question, because this is really where, you know, I'm not saying that other things aren't hard, but this is really where also you get the bang for the buck, right? Having systems that, that listen in is great, but if you don't have a way to process all the data you get, and you're getting a lot of data, right, and making sense of that data, uh, then it was all for nothing. Um, so the way Airbus has chosen to do this is, you know, Airbus has a very well-established uh, security operations center that, uh, you know, uh, look at the internal IT networks, and, and we're leveraging those. So, so Airbus has really decided that, all of this monitoring data needs to be managed at one place uh, because, and, and for me, that makes a lot of sense because uh, you need to have a, an overall view of what's going on because if you have one team that's only looking at OT and one team that's only looking at IT, uh, you're missing the link in between. We know that you know, we have very few attacks uh, or 
tried or you know attacks that only affect one side right typically uh, they start on the IT side move on the OT side and vice versa so so Airbus has made this decision um, to use its IT SOC to also incorporate uh, the events coming from the OT side um, and that of course has some challenges connectivity is one uh, so we absolutely have to make sure that the links the connectivity links that are introduced uh, to transfer that data don't introduce additional risks and threats right so so you want to make sure that you also control these links very well and that uh, uh, they don't become a, a backdoor in um, and then I think where also a big challenge is, of course, then, you know, making sense of that data. And, you know, this is, I think, you know, if you allow me to say a bit of our, also, I think, our secret sauce and where we really benefit working closely with the customer and having, you know, the expertise of, you know, OT side, the people from the manufacturing, you know, having the experts that have been running security operations center for a very long time, having IT experts uh, to create what we call use cases. So that we can process these events as much as possible in, a, in an automatic way because otherwise you, you couldn't deal with the amount of data that you get um, and then make sense of it uh, i think one of the challenges that we also saw if you do it this way so if you bring in ot data into an it saw uh, there's a lot of processes and, and also technology and backbones that you can reuse but there's also things where you have to be very careful and make some changes uh, and one of the areas, to give you an example, is going back to one of the things Falk said about incident response, right? Um, because when you process this data and, and something is flagged as a potential anomaly, at some point a human has to look into this to decide is it a false positive or is it really something we need to look at? And that's where you need to make sure that your IT SOC now also has OT expertise, or at least can rely on bringing in OT expertise uh, because deciding whether something is a false positive or not uh, requires a different view. And if you then actually decide, yes, this is something we need to dig in a little bit more, again, you know, you might have a, a cert, uh, so a response team kind of uh, setup. Um, they now also need to have OT experts or expertise or need to have access to OT experts because uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure Falk wouldn't be too thrilled if you know a bunch of IT experts knock at his store who have never seen an industrial system and are now trying to uh, you know investigate what's going on uh, so again I think one of the challenges that, that you know we see internally but also with our clients is you know you can make a lot of reuse of an IT SOC but you need to really understand where do you have to make some changes? Where do you have to really pay attention that OT is a different world uh, so that you know you don't have problems coming later down the road? Yeah, I completely agree. And that um, that approach just makes total sense to us because in the end, when we are faced with a threat, the attacker doesn't restrict himself to attacking either IT or OT. Um, and bringing those detection and response capabilities together in one unique instance is just the way to go in our environment where we have a mixed IT and OT infrastructure. Waterfall Security Solutions is the OT security company, and we are pleased to announce the Waterfall Industrial Security Institute. 
The Institute is a YouTube video series focused on industrial cybersecurity education and solutions. The first chapter of episodes features the top 20 cyber attacks on industrial control systems. Understanding attacks is vital to designing robust cyber defenses. The Top 20 series introduces enterprise security practitioners to industrial operations concepts, while introducing engineering practitioners to cybersecurity offensive and defensive concepts. The Institute is making the first three of 20 episodes in the chapter available at launch. Number one, ICS Insider. Number two, IT Insider. And number three, Common Ransomware. Please subscribe to Waterfall's Industrial Security Institute at youtube.com forward slash waterfall security solutions. Andrew, a couple of times there, he mentioned reusing stuff. Um, I, I wasn't quite sure what he meant. Uh, what does it mean to what exactly are we reusing here? Well, this goes to a, a debate in the industry. Um, you know, there are people who say, look, uh, you know, a SOC is a security operations center. You tend to have one for the, for, you know, all of your IT networks in the business. You know, your, most enterprises have one SOC. Should you have the OT data and the OT knowledge in that same SOC? Do you have an integrated ITOT SOC? Or do you have a separate OT SOC? Do you have two OT SOCs or maybe two OT SOCs co-located so people can walk back and forth, but they're really two different functions. Is this one function or two is the debate? And uh, what I heard these folks come back with is, you know, uh, Airbus has weighed in saying, we have one SOC, it does everything. And, you know, they, they said the the reason they chose that is that uh, a lot of the IT knowledge and the IT technology applies to OT systems because the highest levels of these OT systems are using SQL databases. They're using Windows. They're, you know, they're, they're familiar to uh, IT experts. So they said you can reuse a lot of that knowledge and a lot of the monitoring and alerting technology uh, that is already there in the IT SOC because it applies to the highest levels of the OT systems. And... Uh, you also need extra OT knowledge to interpret the lowest levels of the OT systems. And of course, you'd better have some OT knowledge if you do incident response. If a response team shows up on site saying, where's your systems? We're going to fix them. They'd better know what they're doing when they're touching OT systems. So this, you know, they, this is, they've weighed in on the combined SOC side of the argument. So a few minutes ago, you know, you were talking about... Uh, monitoring. You were talking about, I heard the word management as well. What's management in this context? For us, right, uh, you know, manage, uh, you know, I mean, in general, we look at this topic of OT cybersecurity, it is a, is a sort of a circle in, in general, right? There's a, there's a phase where you assess, uh, you know, where you try to gain the visibility into your assets and, uh, and the risks that, that you may have. And, you know, there's uh, typically a step where you want to improve the, the resilience and the security of those systems. So this is what we refer to as the protect phase. And then there's the, the, the manage phase where, you know, this is really uh, sort of the daily, you know, daily operations where of course you have the, the, the monitoring where you're looking at all your events. But I think what's really important there is, you know, monitoring is one thing. The other thing that goes hand in hand is really that continuous improvement of your you know, security controls and your processes. And I think that's really, really important. 
Um, because, you know, we all know how fast, you know, the attack uh, or the threat landscape can change. And, and unless you're able to keep up, you know, you're, you will always find, fight a, a losing battle. So for us, you know, manage, again, it's, it's to continuously monitor your situation, but then based on the know-how that you gain from that, is really then to also gain the understanding of what do we need to change? Where do we need to improve? And you know those improvements, or you know, can be anywhere. That it can be technical uh, improvements, so adding you know new layers of protection. It can mean uh, updating or tweaking existing security controls. But it can also be you know quote unquote simple things like properly maintaining an asset inventory, properly maintaining access control lists, um, but also things like training awareness. Um, you know, practicing your instant response plans. That's all part of manage. And I think sometimes that gets a little bit lost because we tend to focus, because we are engineers and we're all geeks at heart, so many of us are geeks at heart. We tend to focus on the technical things, right? We, 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 we love to, you know, jump into that technical rabbit hole. Um, but if we then forget that there's a lot of other aspects uh, that need to be managed equally well. And again, these are, you know, people aspects, training, uh, you know, just maintaining proper asset inventory lists and things like that. Uh, if you don't do that, um, again, then your technical controls might be useless very quickly. For example, what we see every once in a while, or actually quite often is when we monitor, is that we discover communications um, and when we flag those to the customer, they, they realize that it's devices that shouldn't be there anymore or communications that shouldn't happen anymore, which I think is also quite interesting. So often uh, it's not necessarily also security improvements or management, it's really operational improvement because they realize that they still have you know, misconfigured devices or devices that shouldn't be there anymore and actually uh, once they start cleaning some of these things up, you know, the network becomes a lot more performant. Um, so this is another example of, of management where by monitoring, by having visibility into what is going on into your network, uh, because asset inventories haven't been kept up to date, you start realizing that and you can both clean up your asset inventories, but also clean up the, your networks um, to reduce traffic and have ultimately a much more performance system. Okay, let's change gears. You also mentioned incident response a little while ago. And, you know, I imagine that, that incident response is, is very difficult in an environment where you have to be up all the time, where you're, you're building, you know, two or three aircraft a day. Um, if you start investigating a security incident, you know, you can't, I imagine you can't, stop production while you while you i don't know gather all your forensics and how you know and this is especially expensive if it turns out to be a false positive a false alarm how do you you know how do you manage incidents in this this very uh this very performant environment yeah that's actually a quite an issue that we need to solve there since we have the approach to um to operate our security operations center as a uh, as a one for all security operations center, meaning that all IT and OT incidents pop up there, 
meaning that the handlers in that incident need to be aware of both IT and OT, or at least a, a special subset of those need to be at least proficient in the OT world as well. And there are always um, clashes when you try to resolve the incident response processes after that, because when you ask the, the SOC people on how they imagine trying to resolve it, they are always imagining perfectly um, organized uh, inventories and, and remote connections to the assets to investigate and, and so on. And you need to bring them a little bit to reality that that will not be the case and that will not be the case for a long time in the future. And you need to work with uh, semi-reliable data. And um, yeah, ma but make them aware of how how the shop floor is working and how you can address security issues in that environment. For example, by um, using backups instead of the, the live machinery to, to investigate certain aspects of an incident and so on. And you have the other side as well that are uh, demanding for a telephone number to the SOC so that they can call when they, when they think they, that there's something wrong. And there also we need to make some awareness to tell them, well, we, it's hard to give you a number. There is a number, but uh, we need to really make sure that the calls that you will give to a 24-7 operational SOC are qualified, right? It's not like a call for, for technical support. And we don't really know what, what will happen to the number once we give that out to an uncontrolled group of people. So we need to do the awareness on the other side as well. Both of the sides have the impression that they need to be in the driver's seat and bringing both of them together uh, in an efficient process, that is the real challenge that we are facing and that we are resolving together with our colleagues from Iber Cybersecurity. No, absolutely, and you know, for us, again, as we operate security operation centers uh, for many different uh, clients on many different systems, you know, one of the things, uh, and again, this is a bit of our secret sauce, but we have, you know, we're working with use cases, and these use cases, you know, there's also a playbook that helps our analysts, you know, if something pops up, it helps them go through step-by-step, step, you know, what, what do they need to do, what do they need to look, be uh, looking for, and how do they need to react? And here is really where, you know, if you build these playbooks, it's a big difference between IT and OT. Right, and uh, on the OT side, uh, you know, we also realized it's maybe even more important to work even more closely with the customer uh, because it really also depends on, you know, what is the system that you're monitoring? Uh, is it one that you can potentially stop? Uh, is it one that has, you know, regularly scheduled downtimes that you could be using? Or is it one that really has to be up and running 24-7? And if you interrupt it, you know, it's going to have a massive impact. So, you know, we, we realize that this is really a particular area where you have to, you know, invest a lot of time in the beginning to get this right. You know, these, these playbooks um, and also sometimes to spend maybe even a little bit more time to make sure it isn't a false positive. Because again, depending on what the system is, right, you can afford uh, to take the risk that it is a false positive because you can say, well, you know, if we start the incident process, we will identify quickly that it is a false positive, but it's not a big problem. And in other cases, you know, that's not acceptable. 
So, and these playbooks, you know, developing all of this, you cannot do by yourself. This is really where uh, the service provider and the asset owners, uh, you know, need to talk together. And also to, and this comes back to what Falk also says, to really define the handover, right? What is the uh, managed service provider doing? What are the steps that, you know, we are responsible for? When do we hand over? Uh, what's the information that we provide when we hand over? Uh, you know, how are we available to further support? Those are things that are extremely important that they are clear. Uh, if you don't do them, if you don't have that written down, you know, it'll create a mess. So I, I really liked Marcus's answer there. I mean, in a sense, what Marcus said was, it depends. But, you know, he went he went deeper. Um, basically, uh, you know, my, my takeaway, my paraphrase is, is that it's all about the the deep understanding of each individual site. It's all about the uh, the, the SLA with that site. Quickly, though, before you continue, um, I'm not sure that SLA service level agreement is something that we've discussed on the show before. Could you give me some background on that? This is the agreement with a site. When you have a service provider who is providing a service to a site, like the security monitoring and incident response services, there has to be an agreement in place saying, what is the responsibility of the provider? What is the responsibility of the site? How quickly does the provider have to respond? What kind of responses does the provider provide? So all of that, all of that detail. And, you know, Marcus was saying it, it uh, at the, uh, you know, Every site is different. Every site has different kind of equipment. The equipment has different uptime requirements. Sometimes, I mean, let's say you have a, uh, a device at a site that only routinely runs, let's say, 60% of the time because it's faster than the other equipment at the site. And if you see something fishy with the, the automation that is controlling that sort of uh, faster equipment, well, you can take it down for an hour, do a backup, you know, re you know, recover from a backup, uh, because the thing is down for for eight hours a day anyway. It's only running at sixty percent of capacity. But if you're working with one of the devices that is sort of in the critical path, well, then you, you can't take it down because now you you impair production for the the entire facility. Uh, and you know, the other thing that he he pointed out was was the agreement in terms of who touches what, who's allowed to touch what, because the engineers at the site want to control change to their stuff. They don't want their stuff changing out from under them because somebody's doing a, a, an incident response investigation. And so the, you know, the clearly defining who's responsible for doing what to everything at the site uh, sounds like the, the secret sauce here. And that agreement sounds like it's going to be very specific to the, the the specific automation at the site so you know this is an insight that that i'd always wondered about how do you do this and you know it, it, the answer i heard marcus say is it's not easy you just have to do it there's a lot that has to be defined if you want to do this well in the very beginning you introduced yourselves as a, a cybersecurity arm of Airbus that serves Airbus and serves other customers. You know, you've been giving us a lot of sort of good general insights. Can you go a little deeper on, on, you know, what you folks do, what services do you offer? What, you know, what, what is Airbus cybersecurity? Now that we've, you know, we've, we've heard all about this, this very complicated environment. Uh, you know, tell us again, 
um, you know, what you do and, and, and what's available uh, to this environment and, and to other customers if they're interested. Uh, absolutely. So on a, on a high level, you know, Airbus cybersecurity, I, I always say is essentially it's three uh, different types of businesses. Um, so on the one hand, you know, we have a company called StormShield that has uh, uh, security products, uh, firewall, endpoint protection, um, that is also now more and more focusing on OT. Um, we have a part of our business because we are a defense player that works very closely with defense and government, uh, where we are, uh, you know, in the UK, the clear leader on encryption, for instance, and key management solutions. Uh, in, in France, we are extremely well positioned around cyber defense. Um, and, you know, that's a very important piece of our business because it also allows us to do things and see things that most companies don't and then take that into the third piece of our business, which is all around, you know, um, cybersecurity services, managed services, more for the commercial side. Now, if I look more specifically onto, you know, the industrial OT side, you know, uh, we have quite a wide variety. Again, we, we, we classify into assess, assess, protect, and manage, um, and really offer, you know, anything from high-level, uh, you know, overviews where we work with customers that are just getting into this field to just try to help them get the arms around the problem, right? Uh, then we can work with customers to generate a proper asset inventory and, 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 and do an analysis of that inventory. Uh, we have methodologies just to do kind of a maturity check so we can help customers understand where they are. We can do very technical penetration tests or risk assessments. Um, but then again, also we can help with the protection where we can integrate our own, but also a lot of third party products to really help the customer build a holistic uh, cyber architecture. Uh, and then last but not least, again, around manage, uh, of course, we have the security operations center uh, where we work with our customer. We also have what we call the on-demand uh, services because a lot of our customers, you know, um, have short-term needs that pop up. Um, so we are also ready there to engage very quickly. Um, and again, I think one of the things that, that we also do um, more and more is around the human element. So whether it's the classical uh, cyber awareness, uh, we do cybersecurity exercises, war gaming, so it can be, we can do paper exercises, but also with our uh, simulation platform that we have, we can actually do real, you know, red team, blue team, specifically for OT. So the scenarios that we run, um, they're not, you know, the, the classical IT scenarios, but we can really simulate a customer's OT environment. Uh, we can go as far and have a hybrid solution where we simulate the majority of the, of the customer's networks, but can actually connect physical devices if we really want to get the timing right. So we really try to be that trusted partner, I always say, to our clients. You know, we are interested in long-term relationships with our customer because OT Cyber, it's not about, you know, uh, just throwing a product or a one-time service at a customer. Uh, for us, this is really, you know, trying to engage in, in the entire journey uh, and to continuously help the customer improve and evolve. So this has been great. Um, you know, we're coming up on the end of the episode. Is, the, is there a thought that, that you folks would like to leave with our listeners? I would like to 
um, give you some aspects of, of OT security that um, although I'm quite young, I have learned with as, as, a, as a product owner uh, of cybersecurity solutions in a large organization. And that is, um, although both parties that are involved in making OK OT security a reality, naming the production or, or maintenance uh, um, organizations as well as the IT organizations are most of the times focused on making technical solutions ready for deployment and deploying them all over the place. Ultimately, the most important thing that you need to achieve is that both organizations, both sides need to trust each other. And this trust has most of the times some history. So maybe in particular, they always lurking distrust of the IT being non-efficient, only talking in their own lingo, and both towards the OT side being a, always creating business-managed infrastructure that is poorly managed and so on. And overcoming these, um, these, these, uh, these thoughts and working together and starting to trust each other is one of the fundamental cornerstones without it you won't achieve anything because the projects always run as far as it goes to really operating a service where you really need both sides working together hand in hand. And if one of the parties is still not trusting the other one, then this will just not work in the end. And that's something I, I learned um, in the few years I'm working on that, on that scenario. And um, that's really, that, that, that was really something I would like to tell myself a few years back, to focus more on the trust and the human side of that. Yeah, for, for me, actually, I would go into the same direction. And, you know, we started this podcast talking about Walt. And, and one of the things that made Walt special was his desire and drive for collaboration. Whether it was collaboration you know, between different security solution providers, collaboration between asset owners, collaboration between asset owners and vendors. Uh, he was a great believer, and, and so am I, that, you know, we can only overcome these challenges if we work together. And that, for me, is probably the most important thing. If I look at, you know, why we have been successful uh, with, with Falk and his team is because we really collaborate very closely together. We put the teams together, and I like to think it wasn't a uh, supplier-customer relationship. It was really a very partner-oriented relationship. And this is also when we engage with our clients, you know, we, we, it's very obvious we are successful when we achieve collaboration uh, with our customers, but when we can also bring in, you know, third-party solution providers, governments, whatever. So that, you know, my call to action, my thought is work with anyone that is willing to work with you. So Nate, you know, a lot of my experience in the field has to do with technology. A lot of our recent episodes have to do with uh, a lot of technology. Um, you know, I think the, the emphasis here, uh, you know, both remembering Walt and sort of for the, the entire managed security service providing uh, function here is more talking about people and services 
and uh, you know collaboration so uh, you know it's it's uh, it's been a bit of a change for pace but but I take the point here that when you have a lot of people involved uh, they've all got to be on the same page they all got to be working together all right well that's a, a nice enough way to end things I'd like to thank Falk Lindner and Marcus Brandel for speaking with you Andrew and as always Andrew thank you for speaking with me always a pleasure thank you Nate this has been the industrial security podcast from waterfall Thanks to everybody listening.